Well, guys, we're going to continue on in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 20, verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 19. Luke 20, verse 1 to 19. And the title is Tried and Tested. Tried and Tested. So I'm going to ask you a question. How many in here uh, like taking tests? It's okay if you do. Like, do you like to? Okay, there's. Okay, that's the smart section right there. You need to sit in the front right. Wow. You guys like. <laughs> Three out of whatever. So, but here's the thing. Statistics show that in this country, between 40 to 60% of students struggle with test anxiety. Students have a hard time focusing because they're so nervous they cannot concentrate. Now, this is a reality, but it's not so, also not an excuse to attempt to get out of testing because, I mean, testing is a part of life. I mean, thinking biblically, we know that the Lord tested Israel and he tests his people. Why? Well, tests are good because... Number one, tests demonstrate that we have faith. And number two, tests demonstrate that we have uh, the the genuineness. It really brings out the genuineness of our faith in God. And I love what James 1, 2, and 3 says. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In this verse, the word trials in the Greek is periosmos, and the word uh, genuineness is uh, dokimian. And dokimian means to put someone or something to the test with the purpose of discovering that person's nature or their quality. Now, these two words are actually used in only one other place in the Bible, which is 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7, which says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, Dachimian was used for coins to determine their value or their worthlessness. I like what one commentator said. He said, you know when men test gold, why they put it in the fire? They know that if it is gold, fire will not hurt it. Men do not seek to destroy gold with fire. They do not seek to harm it in any way. Instead, they try to prove beyond all doubt that it is gold. And this is what God is doing when he applies trials. He seeks to show that they are true Christians. You know, like a school or a job, you're given tests to show that you know the information so as to move on and progress. Well, as the Lord allows things in our lives that can be difficult, we're put to the test in order to be refined, to progress, to move forward in the faith. Uh, George Mueller, uh, who was an awesome man of God, who started an orphanage and took in hundreds and thousands of, of orphans and cared for them, He said this, he said, the only way to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. I have learned my faith by standing firm amid severe testing. Like you might have heard this, but a taste, uh, I'm sorry, a faith that can be tested is a faith that can be trusted. And so the religious leaders, they would test Jesus, but we know from taking a step back and looking at their hearts and motives, we know the whole story, that they were testing Jesus in order to trap Jesus. As Christ followers, we need discernment, right? Meaning we need to seek the Lord to see if we are being tested or trapped. Like now, the Lord doesn't attempt to trap us. He doesn't tempt us, right? That is what the enemy is consistently doing. He attempts to get a foothold. He whispers lies. He skews God's word. 
He tempts, he tempts us and tries to trap us in order to make us idle for eternity. And the, fir the first time I had an MRI, I told this a, a while ago, but man, I, I drank a bunch of coffee before. I never had an MRI. I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. I was like, ah, it's just a test, whatever. I've been to the doctor. I've had tests before. I was fine until they put me into this little coffin like machine, and in inside, I was stressing out. I was in there for about 40 minutes as, you know, the obnoxious sounds went off, and I never felt such anxiety in my life. I was going crazy. I never, my mind was going crazy. I was not prepared for what I was about to face because I had no idea what to expect. I felt so trapped, but at, at the same time, I was like, if I yell right now, because in my mind, I was yelling, if I yell right now in the middle of this test, they're just going to make me come back and take it some other time. So I'm just going to get through this and just stay here being tortured, that's what I felt like. I'm, you know, might be exaggerating, but I really felt like I was going to die. Um, so I, I just stayed in there. And, but that's the thing. The Lord's not trying to trap us or fill us with anxiety, right? But what God does is allow certain events in our lives that would either bring our faith to the surface or bury it deeper. You know, some Christians, when their faith is tested, enter a state of defeat, and then they retreat from the things of God. They give up quickly. Others know that they're in a trial and that God is there with them, holding them up, and their faith is activated because that is what carries us through from day to day. You know, I've definitely had people in my life who I knew were trying to trap me <laughs> with questioning. You might be able to relate when it comes to the things of God. You know, they have questions about God, the Bible, faith, a doctrine, all those things. And some, but some genuinely want to know answers because they're searching. I think that's awesome. Spend time with him, conversing, asking them to consider these truths from God's word. Others could care less what your, their, your answer is. They're just formulating their next argument, not listening to what you're saying, but I'm going to catch him with this one, right? But discernment is what we need in order to know how to answer each question and each person. So the religious leaders in this chapter, they were testing Jesus, and in verse 17, it says they rejected him. Now, this word rejected means to reject after examination, an investigation. Remember the Passover lambs? They were to be examined from the 10th to the 14th day to make sure they had no blemishes, Exodus 12. And even though they rejected Jesus, you know, Jesus was and is the perfect lamb of God, as, first John, or as John 1 29 says. And what's interesting is that even though the religious leaders were examining and attempting to trap Jesus, it was actually Jesus who was examining and testing the religious leaders. You know, when we see their response, we'll see that they were prideful, hateful. They had major unbelief in their hearts, which is why during his earthly ministry, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders more than any other group. They should have been good and godly examples of what following the Lord looked like. Yet they were the opposite, and Jesus called them out. So let's pray, you guys, and we'll get into Luke chapter 20 this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to gather together. Thank you, Lord, that when your word goes out, it accomplishes the purpose for which it sent out, Lord, as Isaiah 55 says. And we just pray that you'd meet each one here exactly where we're at, Lord. Meet us in our life circumstances. You're so faithful to speak uh, in and through your word, Lord. So speak to our hearts now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing is the question in verse 1 and 2, chapter 20 says, Now it happened... On one of these days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? And so 
with Jesus having cleansed the temple, remember, it really got the attention of the religious establishment. Uh, this guy is radical. He's turning over tables. Remember, Jesus cleansed the temple and then stayed there, and he made it his like headquarters. He, he set up camp. I mean, talk about bold. He comes in, rebukes the religious leaders, and then teaches and heals people struggling like right there. So because Jesus was right there, they wanted to question him because he was teaching the people. Now, Jesus wasn't out looking for debates. He was simply teaching the people and reaching the people. And so they asked him, well, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Basically, like, who are you? Who do you think you are? Jesus didn't have any prominent degrees. He didn't have formal education, honors from an ecclesiastical body. He was a carpenter's son. And how dare he usurp the religious leader's authority? There were the three religious authorities here confronting Jesus, three groups, right? And this is relevant for today as groups unite often to go against the truth of God's word. So the chief priests, they claimed authority from Moses since the law set, set the tribe of Levi apart who served in the sanctuary. The chief priests, there were the scribes who were students of the law and they really claimed their authority based on the rabbis they followed. They meticulously copied manuscripts and documents. That's what they did. The elders of Israel, they were the leaders of the clans chosen for their wisdom and experience. So all these men had authority in this culture and society, and they were not afraid to confront Jesus. After all, without authority and order, there's chaos and confusion. So there are those who genuinely want answers when it comes to faith and truth questions, and there are those who want to be right and just prove their point. Right? These three groups that confronted Jesus were not genuinely seeking the truth of who Jesus what was or who Jesus is and what the truth was. And we know from Jesus' rebukes that these guys were hypocrites. They were compared themselves to everyone else, making them seem superior. Right? Remember that Paul the Apostle said comparing is of the flesh. They stood on a platform of pride and judged everyone based on themselves. And they were dishonest. You know, I was reading a story the other day. It was a man named Brian Mwenda. He recently was arrested in Kenya. And he was impersonating a lawyer. And he actually won 26 out of 26 cases in court against professional lawyers. And he wasn't a lawyer. He was impersonating one. This guy was an imposter. And he was such a good counterfeit lawyer that he just won all of the cases he tried. Now, of course, he didn't really win because he ended up in prison. I'm just saying, like... <laughs> But that time he was in court, I mean, he was an imposter. And so were many of the religious leaders, according to Jesus. The religious leaders were highly critical as well. I mean, those who criticize instead of compliment are usually incredibly insecure about themselves because criticism is a way to make those insecure feel temporarily better. But the religious leaders were jealous that the crowds went after Jesus, so they wanted to take him down. And I love what Jesus does here. He turns it around and he puts these three groups on the defensive. Jesus answers their question with a question. In our day, this is called myutics, which is also known as the uh, Socratic method. Um, Socrates, I was thinking about this. Socrates, I always want to say Socrates. Have you seen Bill and Ted's? I'm like, I literally wrote in my notes, Socrates with a bunch of E's. Because I'm always like, Socrates, no, Socrates. He, uh, but he would answer a question with a question in order to let the recipient come up with the answer themselves. Well, Jesus answered questions with questions in order to bring what's on the person's heart to the surface. And Jesus asked in the Gospels about 307 questions. Jesus answered only three questions directly. 
So the reason was that by Jesus asking the right questions, the listener would end up answering their original question themselves. So what happens? Well, Jesus answers here in verses 3 to 8. It says, But he, but Jesus, answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know when, where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus took them back to John the Baptist. The reason being, number one, John pointed to Jesus and introduced Jesus to the nation, which meant if you reject John, it was a rejection of Jesus. See, as you share the truth with others, if they reject what you say, uh, as you share the scriptures, they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord, right? That you know, you know, many paralyzed people this, in this world, they're rejected from jobs because of being immobile. Well, what's amazing is that I recently read that in a, in a cafe in Japan called Don, they hire paralyzed people who, from home, control robot servers in a cafe, in their, in their cafe, so these paralyzed people would be able to have an income. I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, even when we feel rejected, when we share our faith, the Lord, he's still getting his word out, which will accomplish its purpose. You know, people aren't rejecting you, they're rejecting God's truth. And number two, it's a spiritual principle that if we reject truth that we already know, God won't reveal new truth to us or more truth to us. But, but as we tr walk in truth, then the Lord will open our eyes to more truth as we remain good stewards of God's word. And as a good example is John chapter 7, verse 14 to 17, which says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, they were astonished, right? Saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So, Jesus knew that these guys questioning him already rejected John's message. John will go to prison for calling out sin, and then he'd be beheaded for being bold in his faith. So Jesus did answer their question with his question, explaining who he is and really exposing their hypocrisy. So if John the Baptist was from God, then he was right in proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. If, he, if this was true, then yes, Jesus had all authority. So now the religious authorities were in a dilemma because no matter what they answered, they were in trouble. I don't know about you, but I don't like trick questions. You know, I, I was never a good test taker, honestly. I was never. I would go in the bathroom and read, the, read be anxious for nothing. Like, I would read and pray before tests because I hated them so much. But, uh, but when, I, when I read questions, I, I swear, like, two out of the four were both correct. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so then you have to delineate, and you're like, okay, which one is more quick, correct? They both seem right. Jesus questioned these guys, and they were just stuck. They didn't know what to answer. And so, you know, there's a road in France that only can be used twice a day, so cars travel over it. And water recedes two times a day, and this road is able to be driven over to get to this certain destination. Now then, the road disappears under 13 feet of water and can't be used until the next day. It's no joke. Now, if you don't use this road at exactly the right time, you will get stuck. The religious leaders attempted to trap Jesus in his words, but Jesus ends up trapping them. So they played dumb. They decided not to answer, 
These guys knew John preached with unction, but they didn't repent and receive the Messiah. Yet if they said John was just another professional preacher and nothing more, then the people who perceived Jesus as a prophet of God would be very angry. And they knew this. So now, Jesus really tells a parable in order to illustrate God's plan. Remember, a parable is a practical story to illustrate a spiritual truth. So verse 9, continuing on, it says, And then he, then Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the, uh, the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Verse 13. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, Hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. So Isaiah the prophet, he actually also used a vineyard to portray Israel's relationship to God in Isaiah 5. Now, therefore, Jesus' audience, they, they would, they should have recognized the vineyard as a picture of themselves and uh, the vineyard owner as God. And this type of tenant farming, it really was common in Galilee in the first century. Archaeologists have actually discovered records of this same scenario between landowners and tenant farmers. Pretty amazing. But the Lord's always wanting to make things clear for his people rather than confuse them. Right, so Jesus likened the prophets to a series of servants sent to collect fruit from the vineyard. Each servant was either beaten or killed. In saying this, Jesus was making it clear to these guys that he knew their hearts, intentions, and plans. People don't fall into sin. We sometimes use that term. They walk into it one step at a time. You know, when, we're, when we were in Israel in 2019, a bunch of us were walking through Hezekiah's tunnel, and as the Bible tells us, that 1,750-foot-long tunnel was dug by King Hezekiah so that he could fortify the city against in invading Assyrian armies without compromising its main water source, the Gihon Spring. Now, when we were there, most of us walked through the tunnel, uh, which, which was a tight space, and we had to walk through this water. We had lights on our head. It was really cool. It was exciting and fun for me, but, but some people were rightly afraid to walk through these tunnels because of claustrophobia. You know, uh, but no one was forced to walk through the tunnels. It was their choice. You know, we, as we live and trust Jesus, we aren't forced to disobey him. We can't make excuses, right? It's, it is a daily choice of how we're going to live. So Jesus likened the prophets to a series of servants sent to collect fruit from the vineyard. Each servant was either beaten or killed, yet the Lord sends his messengers into their lives to warn them, yet many continue on the same path to destruction. So what happens? The first messenger is beaten, the second messenger was treated shamefully, the third messenger was permanently wounded, and the fourth messenger was killed. The same, actually, it's interesting because the same horrible progression is seen in the religious leaders. They allowed John the Baptist to be killed. They demanded Jesus to be killed. They themselves killed Stephen in the book of Acts. And this is why, and this is the way sin is. It's, it's, it progresses. 
Sinning never leads to sinning less. If I sin this one time, I'll sin less. No, sinning leads to more sin. In Southern California this last week, uh, our family was able to eat all the food we haven't eaten for a while. You know, because there's different food in Southern California than the South. In-N-Out Burger, have you heard of that? Uh, Round Table, that's my favorite pizza place. Uh, amazing Mexican food, Randy's Donuts. And for, you know, if you might have seen other movies, right, the big donut on top of the, Randy's is super good. But Randy's, I just got a box of donuts. We just got a box. I was like, this, this, this. I just, I was going to get a few, and I ended up getting a whole box. I was like, let's just have a bite of every single one. Uh, maple bars, apple fritters, chocolate bars. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm making you all hungry, but, but I had a choice to just eat one donut. No one said you have to eat all of those, right? Now, no one forced me to eat a handful of donuts, and I, I might have, I don't know, but, but one donut led to another donut led to another donut an hour later. I'm not saying I sinned by eating a bunch of donuts, possible gluttony, I'm just, maybe I'm confessing, but one bite led to another bite led to a stomachache. But here's the thing, the only way to, to sin less is to not sin in the first place. Now, no one on this earth, we're not sinless, right, but our goal is to sin less, and only Jesus was sinless, but we are tempted every day. Temptation isn't sin. We're going to be tempted. And we must use the tools God gave us to resist. There's a lot, a few of them, prayer, seeking the Lord when, you're, when you get tempted. God's word. Remember Job said, make a covenant with my eyes, you know? Accountability. Taking the way of escape. God will give you a way of escape. Just take it. We must walk in the Spirit so as to not fulfill the lust of the flesh, like Galatians 5.16 says. But remember, God blessed the nation of Israel as long as they obeyed. It was conditional. The nation proceeded to rob God and reject his messengers. Nehemiah and Jeremiah, they rejected them as they refused to obey. So in this parable, Jesus gave his own death announcement, essentially. The owners of the vineyard sent his own son, his beloved son, and they killed him. God sent his only son who he called his beloved son in Luke 4, and they killed him. Under Jewish law, any man could claim property that was ownerless. So if these servants and the son came to collect fruit and the owner never showed up, they assumed the owner was dead, and so the vineyard was theirs. And this was the mindset of the religious leaders. We get some insight from the Gospel of John chapter 11, where the chief priests and the Pharisees met to figure out how to put Jesus to death. Jesus was the son who was not only rejected, mocked, and sought after, but he was also killed. Another interesting point is that the owner of the vineyard was gone for a long time. And again, in that day, when the owner was gone more than three years, it was common for the ones working the land to claim the land. So the parable is clear. Jesus knew he was the son, the son of God, and that he knew he would be killed soon. He let them know this more than a few times, but it wasn't truly revealed to his followers until after his resurrection. Literally, there, there's, there's, a, there's a video where this guy uh, hooks up tons of, I don't know if you've seen this, hooks up tons of microphones, hypersensitive microphones on this flying path, and he tests a few birds uh, to see you know, how much noise they make. And all these birds are super loud, and then he tests the owl, and it's like, like you hear nothing. It, it's crazy, it, extremely sad. Owls are known as silent predators of the night and are capable of flying just inches from their prey without being detected. They have special feathers, so they literally fly completely silent. Jesus prophesied about his death and resurrection, and yet the disciples didn't fully hear or get or understand what he was saying at the time. They were silent about it because it wasn't yet time for them to understand. Now, sometimes it seems like the Lord, practically, personally speaking, is silent. 
Like we can't hear him. We wonder if he's even working in our lives. There are moments where some testing of our faith may come. And the Lord asks us to trust even when we don't see his work, even when we don't see his hand in certain areas of our lives. You know, John 20, 29, when talking to uh, Thomas, right, he said, Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. These words of Jesus, they're another beatitude and a promise of great blessing. The faith of Thomas becomes the climax of the Gospel of John. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has triumphed over sickness, sin, evil men, death, sorrow. Now with Thomas, Jesus conquered unbelief in a sentence. Sometimes God tests us when we don't see all the details and what he's doing in our lives. Will we trust even though we don't have every answer up front? Sometimes it seems like the Lord is not even working in our lives, that we are just waiting in a holding pattern like, like a plane in the air. And we may wonder, is God still working? Is he still moving in my life? Well, according to the scripture, yes. Yes, he is. He's always working, moving. And even when we're waiting on certain promises and waiting for God to prepare and equip us, that's still evidence that God's hand is in your life. I think a lot of the work that God does on our hearts is when we're waiting, you know, and we don't like waiting. A lot of the work that God does in our hearts is through trials, and we don't like trials, but that's how we grow. Trusting the Lord means focusing on Him and following His lead rather than focusing on self and attempting to lead without Him. When God seems quiet, that's just an opportunity for us to seek Him and to be still, for He is with you even when your feelings aren't, even when it doesn't feel like it. You know, in the 18th century, John Wesley, he was an English cleric, a theologian, a leader of a revival movement. He became a popular preacher, so he began to preach about what he was seeing as he traveled through England from church to church, traveled all around. He was preaching against the dead religion and in favor of the Holy Spirit, which got him kicked out of every church in the country, literally kicked out, banned. He was banned. He didn't give up. He essentially said, well, I don't need to preach in a building. I can preach outside. And so he's the originator of open-air preaching and teaching. He just said, you know what, I'll go outside, read the Bible, preach out there. He said, he said this, John Wesley said, the best of all is that God is with us. Even if you don't feel like it, even if it doesn't seem like it, God is still with you. Know that God is with you and trust the Lord even when you don't have all the details. Because oftentimes we don't. If you sit around waiting for all the details, be like, once I'm 100%, Lord, then I'm going to take a step. Then you'll be waiting there the rest of your life, right? He might give you 50% of the details. You're like, all right. He told Abraham, go. Abraham didn't say, here's my list of questions. Can you please answer them? He just went, right? And so trust the Lord and take a step of faith, and God will continue to, he'll meet you where you're at every step of the way. And here's the application. Verse 16b to 19 in Luke 20 says, says, and they heard it, I'm sorry, and when they heard it, they said, certainly not. And then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will, be, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. And so they said, certainly not. So the religious leaders rejected Jesus' parable, and he compared them to foolish and rebellious tenants. 
And of course, the religious leaders would be offended and say, this, this couldn't be us. You couldn't be talking about us. But Jesus quoted Psalm 118.22. And by applying this verse to himself, Jesus was clearly saying that he was the Messiah and the builders were the Jewish religious leaders. And also, Peter uses this verse in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, when he says this. Peter preaches. He says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the Old Testament stone, the word stone is a symbol of God and the promised Messiah. And those who trust in Jesus know that he's the foundation or the cornerstone of the church. But also keep in mind that Jesus also referred to Daniel 2, which is a picture of the Messiah as the smiting stone that crushes all if, if it gets in the way. Jesus was really wanting the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, to know that if they condemned him, they would destroy themselves. And later in early church, the stoning of Stephen really demonstrated the hearts of the religious establishment. They rejected John the Baptist, Jesus the Messiah, Stephen, the bold Christ follower. After the stoning of Stephen in Acts, the gospel went from the Jews to the Samaritans in Acts 8 and then to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Really, this parable by Jesus illustrates that the more one sins, the worse it gets. Yet the religious leaders, they didn't even want to recognize their imperfections or their faulty actions. One word of deception or decision can lead to destruction. Uh, in, this, in this one book I'm reading, it, it, it says in 1856, Charles Spurgeon was preaching at the music hall of the Royal Surrey Gardens. The capacity was 10,000 people, but there were way more than that. They, many wanted to hear this, this. He was a famous preacher at the time. And someone yelled one word within the midst of this, this sermon. They said, fire! That's all they said, fire! They were lying. Even though there was not a fire, and people scrambled to get out of there violently. And this huge stampede killed seven people and, inju and injured many more. And this instance, it, it, it bothered Spurgeon and brought on a depression that he had to constantly give over to the Lord for the rest of his life. Look how one lie can lead to just devastation. One word. You remember, the religious leaders, they were on a platform of pride, and they judged others based on how superior and spiritual they thought they were. But like Jesus said, they were hypocrites. Now Peter, in the fourth chapter of Acts, when he was standing before the elders and the scribes and the high priest, this same group that was challenging Jesus here, Peter stood before them in Acts, and they were asking Peter, by what authority did you do the works in this miracle for this layman? What authority do you have? By what name or what power have you done this? So they were giving him much the same questions as they gave to Jesus. We want to know, what power did you do this? By what name? So Peter was here when Jesus was, challenging, was challenged concerning authority. He remembered the answer of Jesus to these men. He remembered this parable that Jesus ended by saying unto them, What does this mean? The stone was rejected by the builders, the same as become the chief's cornerstone. And so Peter brings it right back to them forcibly, declaring of Jesus, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So you have one of two relationships to Jesus Christ. Either that of submitting to him, falling upon the stone, or resisting him, and ultimately being ground to powder. <laughs> That's essentially what it says. 
So the more one sins and acts apart from the Lord, the worse everything gets. I don't know if you can relate to this. Probably we're human. You ever try to fix something and you make it worse. And you make it worse. The, the more you try to fix it, the worse it gets until you're just like, I'm done. In this parable, the tenants started beating some of these servants. They became murderers. And see, those who fall upon Jesus, the cornerstone will be broken. And it's important to admit our sin and our need for Jesus in order that we could actually be saved. It's been said, the ones who are not broken before him will be broken by him. Philippians 2.10 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So to be on the fence or to be undecided when it comes to following Jesus is the same as rejecting him. The religious leaders, they, they got the message. They got the message. They knew that he was referring to them. So they were actually wanting desperately to arrest him at this point. And yet, because of the popular acclaim of the people, like they did not yet want to. They were afraid. For this was all the Lord's will coming to pass. And there were still prophecies to be fulfilled. And so let's not despise detest, you know, testing or trials, for the Lord works in those very difficult situations in order that we may spiritually grow. A lot of the time, I think the mistake we make, and we're human, so I understand it, but we try to pray the trials away. I'm going through a difficulty at work. I'm going through a difficulty in marriage. I'm going through a difficulty with my kids. And you just pray it, try to pray it, pray it away. But I think a lot of the time, that's the wrong thing to do. It's like, Lord, what do you want to teach me in this? Because I'm in this right now. You might be allowing it. I don't know, I don't know what you're doing. I'm unsure, but you know what? I, I'm going through this for a reason. So Lord, teach me what you want to teach me. Not why am I going through this trial, but Lord, what do you want to teach me through this trial? Not, not what if this happens, but even if this happens, I'm still going to trust you. And so Psalm 92, 12 to 15 says this, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So let's just pray that we're not just trying to survive, right? We just don't want to be like, I just want to survive another day. No, but we want to thrive. We want to grow in the faith. I think it's an, such an important thing to every day wake up and be like, Lord, today's yours. Today's yours. Because if we don't like recognize that the Lord is in control, that he's running things, that he's leading us, then we're going to start our day off, and it, it might be a very difficult day because we'll be clinging to ourselves. We'll, we won't be mindful of the spiritual. You know, Jesus was always trying to get people's hearts and minds on the spiritual. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, they were thinking about being born again physically. They were thinking about water. She was thinking about water physically, but he was talking spiritual. Everything, the spiritual realm affects everything that can be seen. The unseen affects everything that can be seen. And so we need to seek the Lord. We need to look to him. You know, he has our best interests in mind. He knows what he's doing. You might not feel him, but we, it's faith first and then feelings follow. It's not feelings first and then faith will follow because faith might not follow your feelings. We don't follow our heart. We follow God's heart, right? Our heart is desperately wicked. So it's like when we're, when we're like, you know what? I just feel like I need to do this. That's a huge thing in our say. We all say it. I'm just saying. Sometimes we're like, I just feel. It's almost a humanistic thing. I feel like we should do this. Oh, did God tell you that? no, I just feel it, you know, don't do it, <laughs> or it's like, I really, I shouldn't say this, but don't say it, do you know what I'm saying, like, God, God will help us with those things, but 
God is in control. He knows what he's doing. You know, Jesus was calling these guys out, and I mean, he was being very straightforward, and I think it's important to not sugarcoat the truth, to just say it straight up. There's some offensive things in the Bible. There's some hard truths that when we read, like we read as Christians, we're like, ah, that hurts, you know, but it's still the truth. We don't, I'm going to change that a little bit. I'm going to skip that because I don't like the way that makes me feel, you know. Again, we're, we, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by feelings. So, amen.